Welcome back, everybody. Time for another Word Balloon comic book conversation. This is John Suntris, fresh off of C2E2. Uh, it's been a couple days, but I got a crazy schedule now. I think I've mentioned it before. I'm uh, doing a little part-time work at uh, the CBS radio station, doing traffic reporting. And, in fact, I even lost a day of C2E2 because uh, on Saturday night I had to do traffic reports late night. I was telling all the creators, hey, if you're driving around and you think of it, listen. Nobody listen. But that's okay. But it's really late night. It's uh, it's uh, midnight till 6 in the morning. Oh, pretty tough, man. But, uh, you know, I had a great time at C2E2. So many listeners came up and said hi and uh, told me how much they enjoy the show. Always means a lot. Thank you very much. Good time with a lot of creators. I always feel like I always uh, say I'm running for mayor at the conventions because I hand out cards for uh, prospective guests and touch base with uh, old favorites. And, man, from the Benson sisters, Julie and Shauna, who do such a great job on Batgirl, Birds of Prey, to Dan Jurgens, Greg Rucka, um, all my you know Chicago guys that set up, but also uh, so many great out-of-towners as well. And, uh, man, I'm, I'm just kicking myself with the people that I miss that I'm friends with. Uh, Jordi Bolera, Dex Shalvey, and uh, my bro- buddy Brent Schoonover. I can't believe I didn't get a chance to talk to those people. But I think it was a good C2E2. And I've booked some uh, prospective future guests, uh, both new and old. And uh, I think uh, we're going to have a nice summer, all of us. So, uh, meantime, I uh, thought this was a good opportunity to uh, slip in this conversation with John Morris. John Morris has written two very funny books for Quirk Books, and I want to get these uh, titles correct. It's uh, The League of Regrettable Superheroes is his first book, and then The Legion of Regrettable Supervillains. Uh, back in 1997, John started a website called Gone and Forgotten that uh, chronicled some of the uh, more ridiculous superheroes and supervillains going back to the golden age of comics all the way up to the modern day. And uh, I heard him first in, um, God, is it that long ago, 2001, on This American Life to uh, talk about his blog and uh, and this subject. And, you know, he had the obvious, like, Matter Reader Lad and people like that. But, uh, man, I'll tell you, both of these books are fantastic. And the supervillain book is the more recent one. But, um, you know, it's it's hilarious. And this gives us a chance. It's kind of like a virtual long box as we discuss some of the heroes and villains that uh, uh, John chronicles in these books. But it's also a great opportunity to talk about some really fun creators as well. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. It's a lot of fun. And also, John uh, is one of the hosts of Just One More Thing, a great Columbo podcast. And I'm a huge Columbo fan, as you'll hear at the end of the, the conversation when we have to talk a little bit about Lieutenant Columbo, Peter Falk. Uh, man, I, I was a kid when uh, it was originally on back in the 70s. I have watched those episodes nonstop in the same way that I watched Barney Miller and The Odd Couple and The Honeymooners and some of those other classic TV shows. And uh, I even enjoyed the 90s TV movies. And you can hear John Wentz, I think, <laughs> when we talk about the 90s Columbos. But I don't care, man. It's Peter Falk in a trench coat. You had me at a low. So uh, this is a really fun conversation, and I look forward to sharing it with you today. John Morris talking about some of the more goofier superheroes and supervillains and the history of comic books in, as well in this episode of Word Balloon. Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support. Uh, more newcomers uh, this week. 
which means a lot. And uh, in, in fact, some even uh, approached me at C2E2 and said, hey, man, I, I support you on Patreon. So it gave me the chance to thank them uh, personally and say thank you very much, League, uh, for your support, Leaguers. Uh, and uh, you can uh, do the same if you, uh, if you can spare it. If you think what I do here at Word Balloon is, uh, you know, what I try to make it, this kind of virtual uh, Comic-Con panel or, uh, or audio magazine, when you consider the different subjects that we talk about, I mean, yeah, I cover what's going on in DC and Marvel, but I try to hit the other publishers as well. And also just have great, fun, interesting conversations with great creators and people like John Morris, who uh, love comics as well, and are uh, adding to the conversation with their contributions. So thank you very much, League, for your support. If you'd like to be one of the League of Word Balloon listeners, you can uh, go to wordballoon.com, click on the Patreon ad there. Uh, do you think Word Balloon is uh, worth you know, the price of a comic book a month. If you can spare that, that's terrific. Uh, thank you very much, League, for your support. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. And I am looking at uh, some of the new trades that are coming out this comic book Wednesday from InStock Trades. And uh, it is quite the collection. Some great Mark Wade stuff, like Flash by Mark Wade Trade Paperback Book 2. Mark Wade, uh, Greg LaRoque, and others. Uh, Ty Templeton, uh, I think, uh, does uh, the cover. And uh, this is uh, great stuff, man, featuring all of the Flashes, not just uh, Wally, not just Barry, but the great Jay Garrick as well, and some of the other wonderful uh, contributions uh, to the Flash world that Mark Wade made. 432 pages. It's 50% off. It's just $17.49. You can get uh, Captain America Volume 2 uh, from Marvel Knights. And this, uh, what does this collect? It collects... Uh, the Captain America 2002 comic from uh, number 17 to 32. It has uh, Captain America red, white, and blue. Um, was that Jeff Loeb's thing? I think that was Jeff Loeb's thing, wasn't it? Uh, Dave Gibbons. Um, I'm guessing Robert Morales. Robert Kirkman. Uh, uh, Lee Weeks. Uh, Chris Pachalo, uh, J. Scott Campbell. And Scott Eaton, I believe, are our creators uh, featured. Dave Gibbons did that wonderful Cap Lives which kind of provides this great alternate history. And you get a cool Dave Johnson cover as well. It's uh, 42% off for 488 pages, $20.29. You can also get, uh, let's see. I mean, I see all this mainstream stuff. All right, here we go, Saga. This is Saga, the uh, deluxe hardcover, volume two. Brian K. Vaughn, Fiona Staples. Believe me, kids, I've been trying to get Brian Vaughn on Word Balloon, hopefully someday. But uh, this uh, collects, let's see. Which issues? It's 18 issues of uh, Saga, and it's volume two, so I guess that's issue 19 through... You're going to make me do the math, aren't you? Um, I believe that's going to go if it's 18 issues. Um, so 19 through 36, right? I think so. That makes sense. It's uh, 464 pages, 42% off. It's just $28.99. There's a hell of a lot more, and I, I might mention some more great trades waiting for you at InStockTrades.com. Don't forget, if your orders are $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping. My friends at InStockTrades.com will treat you right. They, they pack this stuff very carefully, and they give you great books at great prices. InStockTrades.com. All right, without further ado, let us join John Morris and get into this great uh, discussion about regrettable superheroes and villains and the creators that made them. And, uh, it, you know, I got to ask, like, you know, because there, there's some familiar names that you're going to hear about. Uh, people like Siegel and Schuster and uh, other uh, wonderful creators. Joe Simon, the co-creator of Captain America, certainly uh, a man that has created his share 
of uh, weird superheroes and supervillains. But it's great to talk about them and Columbo with John Morris now on Word Balloon. John Morris, welcome to Word Balloon, and uh, congratulations on the first book. Very psyched for this new one. Yeah, thanks so very much. I'm pretty psyched about it, too. I mentioned to you as we were scheduling this, I heard your very great segment on uh, This American Life on a great episode that I think, at the very least, people can still stream, if not download, called Superheroes. And weren't you on directly with Ira Glass? I was on directly with Ira Glass. I think this might have even been before This American Life was quite the phenomenon it was, so I got to be the hipster guest. <laughs> How do you know Ira, or did you know Ira prior to the book? I did not. I was contacted by Starley Kine, uh, nice. who was one, yeah. one of the producers at the time on the show, and she'd come across the blog. They were putting together they, – they had already nailed all the top talent, I think, because Chris Ware, John Hodgman were both on – and they had two interesting stories about uh, people who were trying to be superheroes or had superhero-like elements. And I believe I was probably just filling out a little extra space. Well, you did good. I, I was certainly laughing and uh, appreciated the, the subject of your book. Am I right? Wasn't there a – I don't remember if he narrated it himself, but wasn't there like a Michael Chabon short story where it was about Superman and Lois kind of breaking up for a little while and Lois decides to have like a normal – ordinary boyfriend and it's from his point of view and it's the cutest story about how obviously who could compare to superman and just this like real like the other man kind of syndrome of him dating lois had you heard that i uh as as a fellow who runs an exhaustive superman blog on top of everything else i am embarrassed to say no i had actually (laughs) never heard of that before it's it's great and and that as well as your segment and the other ones that were on the superhero episode People should look for that. And then also uh, another great um, public radio show, and now I'm blanking. What's it called? Where, uh, oh, darn it. I can't remember right now. Sorry, everybody. I'll, I'll put it in the post <laughs> notes and, and, and after John and I talk. But um, it was a guy talking about Superman, like, having the choice of immortality or, uh, like, can you, do you want to be a hero or do you want to be an ordinary person? Or, or do you want to, like rid the world of all of its evils or is it more important you to still be a hero and he and he very quietly says hero and a, and a villain hears him and it's from the villain's point of view and the villain's just mocking him and stuff and it's like yeah sure you caught me now but you had a chance to end all this and you mm. chose instead to be the big guy uh snap judgments is the name of the uh a, a very similar to this american life in its presentation and uh, and a very very cool show, but uh, yeah, you're, so your segment was with Ira, and he seemed seemed like a cool guy, seemed like a enough of a comic fan to, to certainly understand what you were talking about. He seemed to be doing pretty well. He actually zinged me off mic <laughs> uh, by asking. Uh, we were talking about what made some characters more popular and really had them resonate. And I had you know at the time I was a callow youth. This was quite a while ago, and I had what I think is about about half of an answer which is we do look for heroes that we can imagine ourselves in their shoes to some degree because they magnify certain qualities that we like about ourselves. You know, they might be stronger or they might be faster or smarter. And it, it flatters us to think, you know, Hey, yeah, I could, I could be that too. And then I was said, what about the Adam? And I was out. He got me. I had no answer for that. Yeah. I don't know whoever wants to be smaller. So I had to give that a lot more thought in the subsequent decade. Now, but that was yeah. I, I, you have to admit, and I'm sure you know your your decades of comics as well. Silver Age was really kind of interesting because science was really even more than I think the 40s uh, mm-hmm. starting to play a big part 
in developing ideas for superheroes. And God, certainly compared to the Golden Age, Adam, who was just, you know, a, a, a short guy. <laughs> with, yeah, with, a really tough little guy. Yes. That's not bad. Yeah, kind of Mickey Rooney, <laughs> basically. Exactly. But, uh, but yeah, you know, and then Al, you know, then, uh, Al, uh, Al Pratt was the Adam, I want to say. Yeah, no, Al Pratt was, the, was Ra- the Golden Age Adam. That's right. He was Ray the Golden Age Adam, and Ray Palmer, of course, uh, was the Silver Age. And you may or may not know this, but he was named after a diminutive science fiction writer. I did know that, and there we go, John. Nice uh, bona fides there. There you go. Beyond the Gotta two, prove myself. We're talking to the right guy, folks. <laughs> the Re- uh, Legion of Regrettable Superheroes was John's first book, and now the new book, The Regrettable Super, The Legion of Regrettable Supervillains. Yep. Very, very cool. <laughs> man. Now, w- there was a big, there was a big gap between these books. So, what, what finally prompted guys to wise up and women to wise up and say, "Hey, we want another book." It was going to be uh, one year between books, which seems really reasonable. Uh, but uh, we had a licensing deal because uh, Loot Crate released a uh, uh, an abbreviated version of the book. Uh, I think November, October. It was October of last year. Cool. And and they asked that uh, to maintain the exclusivity of the product that we put the selling of this book off by six months. Okay. And and here we are. Okay. And you know, forgive <laughs> me because your I guess your initial appearance on This American Life was uh, maybe to do. The blog, right? Was it a blog before it was a book? The, the oh, yeah. It was a Gone and Forgotten, a blog that is celebrating its 20th anniversary this nice year. Nice going. That's fantastic. Thank you very much. Keeping in mind that I take often take two to three to four year breaks. <laughs> so that 20 years accounts for maybe 11 years of writing. All but right. no problem. here we are. That's excellent, man. And uh, and forgive – so uh, what the URL for that blog again? It's a goneandforgotten.blogspot.com. There's also some hyphens in there, but I'll tell you more about them when you're older. <laughs> but if you hop onto Google and just do Gone and Forgotten comics, you're boom, you'll hop right on it. Very good. And uh, and on this 20th anniversary, I promised myself I'd finally buy a real domain name for it. Hey, nice. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> Basically buying it its own car at this point. Well, that's all right, man. That's great. Jesus, 20 years. That's wonderful. And what's your Superman blog's name? That's the chronological Superman, and that's over on Tumblr. Excellent, that's really cool. And what do you do for what do you do for that one before we get into the books? Well, the original writ of the uh, of the blog was to uh, was to do every single appearance of the Superman family in every single medium in chronological order from 1938 through the end of 1949. Wow, wow! And you know, I had that Michael Fleischer. Uh, encyclopedia of comics that only went up to like midway through the 60s. Yeah, I think it went to 60, 68, I think, because that's when he started doing the research. Okay, that makes sense. And the, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so even like, even that short 11 years, there's a lot of yeah. product and there's a lot of, you know, and certainly you had both, uh, you said, so from 38 to 49, so that's mm-hmm. before the TV show, but certainly during the radio show's heyday. Oh, yeah. And the newspaper li- strip. Yep, I had to listen to every episode of the of the uh, radio show. There's Sunday and daily newspapers. There yes. was a movie serial came out right at the end of that. Yeah. The Fleischer cartoons. Yep. Yes. Uh, World's finest, World's Fair, Action, Superman, Superboy, and Adventure Comics. Damn. So after 1949, I started doing just annual summaries, which has been a lot more rewarding because uh, you know I. I can take two weeks and then just write maybe a dozen entries, and I feel a little – I feel like I've covered all the important stuff. That's excellent, man. 
And uh, well, you sent me the you sent me the PDF of the recent book. Um, is it out now or is it coming out? When is the new book it, out? It is out as, as of March 28th. It has a oh, perfect right. five-star rating on Amazon, which is causing me no end of anxiety because if that ever drops to 4.8 stars, I'll have a heart attack. <laughs> That's I'm excellent. spoiled. Very, very good. Well, there you go. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure the Word Balloon audience will uh, join in with positive reviews for your efforts. And I, uh, I can't help but notice um, that, uh, at least scanning through what you sent me and everything, that... Uh, this is a, a lot of um, regrettable supervillains that came from uh, from a lot of the other companies, not just national, but uh, you've got uh, certainly Prize Comics and Fox mm-hmm. Comics and the Hillman, uh, you know, group of uh, books as well. So these are really, you know, especially I would think, especially during the Golden Age, that uh, villains were at their goofiest, or has it always been kind of a tradition every decade? Oh, it's definitely been a tradition every decade. Uh, one of the worst things about that arc from the 70s, keeping in mind I'm a huge Bronze Age fan. There's a lot of value. I really appreciate the literary qualities and the the understanding of things like symbolism and semiotics and social uh, relevance and social issues that were brought to 70s and 80s in comics. And I think there's some amazing books. But at that era, they took themselves really seriously. Uh, almost to the detriment of some of these characters. But really, for the most part, the Golden Age is full of incredibly wacky, goofy characters. The 50s are a downturn for superheroes. Everybody knows that. But when they start coming back at the beginning of the Silver Age in 56, you know, they're Captain Cold and Heat Wave and Mirror Master and all the really great Flash villains, really weird Hawkman and and Spidey villains, or, um, uh, sorry, Hawkman and Green Lantern villains. Mm Mm-hmm. Then you hit the mid-60s, it blows up, you've got the Batman TV show, that makes villains into celebrities, and then you've got the 70s and 80s where we decide to be very serious and take comics very seriously. And then we come back to the 90s, and the 90s is so over the top that villains have to be ridiculous again, (laughs) even though it's kind of hard to tell them from the heroes because of the violent amorality of their cultural, of their particular individual ethos. (laughs) So absolutely, man. No, you're you're nailing all the decades very, very, very well there. Very I better. That's what I wrote the book about. A- Amen. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite decade for the weirdness, or do you appreciate each decade for its uh, singular weirdness? I love them all. You know, there's downsides to every one. I do enjoy the late '60s when the Silver Age went full camp, like intentionally camp. Yes. Uh, and especially because. You know, being a Superman fan and writing the blog, I'm a big fan of Jerry Siegel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel very bad for, you know, Siegel had a, a very sad arc in terms of his relationship to Superman. But he clearly really enjoyed writing comics. And more to the point, he enjoyed writing funny, kind of absurd, silly ones. So a lot of the characters he creates, especially villains, uh, for other companies that aren't DC, which he mostly did under a pseudonym, are amazing. He has uh, one villain called Elasto. Elasto is an FBI scientist who undergoes uh, – who suffers an explosion while doing an experiment. And it gives him the tremendous power of stretching almost limitlessly. But it also gives him terrible self-loathing. And he actually introduces himself to his fellow villains with, my name is Elasto and I need you to understand that I hate myself. <laughs> He's <laughs> – He's beating the hell out of the superhero, and the whole time he's just, you know what? I don't want to do this. Pow! And then he beats him up some more. 
There's that one. There's a, a space wizard called Phantasmon who has every single power you can imagine. And to prove the point, fires lightning out of his nose. Nice. <laughs> and his word balloon for it is tremendous. And I wish I could remember it verbatim. But it's something like, observe lightning from my nostrils. Ha 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 And of course you'd laugh. You're shooting lightning out of your nostrils. So I, uh, I, I just love Siegel's work. He also created the best villain that I couldn't put in the book. Why? And tell me who and why. Because he only appeared in two panels, and it would not, there would not have been enough space to write about him. His name is The Vegetable. He looks like, I think I described him elsewhere as looking, it looked like a pickle giving birth to five men one part at a time. It's basically a giant pickle with arms, legs, and a head. You see him trying to destroy a Little League game, like blow up everybody at it, which is very villainous. Sure. He does it with a grenade shaped like an apple. Now, an apple is not a vegetable. That's true. (laughs) He throws the apple, the web, the hero he's fighting, hits it with a bat, knocks the apple into into the vegetable's car, which explodes. The car is shaped like a banana. That is also not a vegetable. This guy has nothing about him that has vegetables except his appearance in his name, which I am positive is the joke Jerry was going for. That it's the vegetable and all of his accoutrements are fruits. Because that is genuinely funny. Uh, yeah, so I just adore Siegel's work on the villains. He, he has a touch for them that is stupendous. What was his, uh, his alias when he was doing these other work? He uh, – on, on the companies that gave him credit, because, you know, comics didn't always do that. Right. He was, he was usually Jerry S. E-S-S. Oh, OK. Wow. And, and the so, web – am I right? The web is an Archie villain, right? Or an Archie Yeah, hero. an Archie hero. Yeah. yeah. They, uh, they – after the camp phenomenon, Archie uh, brought back a lot of their heroes under the Mighty Comics banner. Yes. And uh, they were very hip in camp. I remember the shield was homeless, I believe. <laughs> He was one of he's part of comics proud tradition of hobo superheroes, um, <laughs> and they all tried to talk hip. The web was what they called the henpecked hero. He yep. had given up his career to get married, and his wife was constantly nagging him to to not be a hero anymore. He would sneak out, which is some more great Jerry Siegel writing right there. Absolutely, man. No, that's great. And uh, you know, now the shield confuses me, and you'd clear it up because there was the shield. And then Simon and Kirby did their Private Strong kind of shield riff, which was really a, a redo of Captain America, you know, maybe right. 15 or 20 years later or whatever, whenever they did it. So there, weren't, there were a couple different shields. Am I correct? Yeah. Um, MLJ, which eventually became Archie, had both the shield and I believe it's Private Lancelot Strong, a.k.a. the shield. Okay. Okay. And which they had to learn to live together. <laughs> in the 1980s, I believe it was, when uh, the Blue Circle comic group came up, and they or Blue Circle, Red Circle, Blue Circle, Red Circle, Red. You know what? I think I'm going to say Red, Red Circle. Circle. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty certain Red Circle. Go on. A colorful circle of some sort <laughs> uh, brought back the Mighty Crusaders and tried to elevate these characters for an 80s audience, and they they wanted them all there. So Private Strong and the Shield had to somehow kind of deal with one another. That's hilarious, and I know you know Archie's doing. Uh, did a reboot of all their you know stuff, and now it's Dark Circle, and my uh, my, good, my, my good friend Alex Segura runs that line, and they got good people, man. They got 
Dwayne Straczynski, who uh, is a great crime novelist, doing uh, The Black Hood. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, man. And, they have uh, a you know, Dean Hash. Isn't Dean Hashfield on that? Yes, Dina was doing um, yeah. The Fox. I do like that guy. Good. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah, you know, and I understand that because really, Dino, Dino's great because he really does. He's got like a crazy kind of manic style and does mm-hmm. throw humor, but is as good at doing real life comics or fun hero comics or even just, you know, traditional straight up, you know, what would count as DC and Marvel stuff today. He's just, he's multi-talented that way. He's, yeah, I, li- I like that he can hop in and out of uh, of whatever role you need him. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I like that guy. Now, and now also I wanted to mention, because I'm, as I remember, uh, I know it was featured on your blog, and I don't know if it was in the first book, but Siegel and Schuster's great creation post-Superman, Funny Man. Funny Man is absolutely in the book, and he's, uh, I think he's the first example of what I really mean by regrettable, <laughs> is that it's not that he's bad. He's a great character. His stuff is actually pretty funny. It's not the funniest book I've ever read. But it's it's pretty funny. It's engaging. It's enjoyable. And DC Comics would have preferred to lose a leg than let him get away with it. Wow. You know, uh, his feud with Leibowitz was apparently so strong and the legacy of it was so strong that National really pursued them to they had they had to take off the uh, the the masthead that read from the creators of Superman, that had to go. Wow. Because DC wouldn't let it. They put, you know, Siegel and Schuster on it, and uh, DC was like, ah, that's pretty closely associated with Superman. And, of course, DC or National owned a lot of the distribution around the time. So that book didn't have a chance. It could have been the greatest comic ever made, and it would have died after five issues. Very interesting, yeah. 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 No, it's sad. And, yeah, their their distribution control limited the amount of books that uh, Marvel was doing, they had a different mm-hmm. distributor, and the guy went out. The, the guy, the business, the, the, the company, <laughs> the guy went out of the guy's car had a flat the guy, tire. The guy who had the it. truck, yeah, exactly. And <laughs> so they had to go to DC, and DC limited them to like eight titles a yeah. month, and that's where we got you know tales of suspense and all the journey into mystery that would have uh, split books of you know a, a half of an Iron Man story and half of a Captain American story, or however you know people know the divvy ups better than I, than I'm giving them, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, and that's like a real testament to the quality of those ideas Yes, that the, you could only do eight books a month. You had gosh, real limited rack space. And when you look at the number of characters that came out during that period and were able to land there, there's not a superhero they created who isn't still around today in some form or another. Very true. Absolutely. And that's that's stunning. But yeah, I believe even didn't Charlton used to have yeah, I think Charlton used to have to deal with the DC distribution I network. I didn't realize that, but that makes sense certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I will I will uh suggest that is a uh, an idea on my part that is definitely worth some kind of research, but I believe Charlton had to use them. Pretty crazy, man. No, you know, do you uh, do you read uh the Tomorrow's magazines like Alter Ego and all these other great magazines? Do you ever contribute to these magazines? Uh, I've contributed to an issue, a couple back issues when, uh, I've needed to come in and do some illustration, but, uh, yeah, I do, I do flip through the two Mars. They, of course, do the Jack Kirby collector, right? That's right. I do love the Jack Kirby collector. Mentioning Charlton, I know Walter Ego had a whole wonderful history of, mm-hmm. uh, of Charlton and also, um, was it, uh, Sebring or whatever the, the company that, um, when Martin Goodman left Mars. Oh, that was... Atlas Seaboard. That's right, Atlas Seaboard. Thank you. Yes. One of my favorite companies because it was formed entirely out of spite. Yes. 
Exactly. And and boy, you know, one of the weird little mysteries, I had Danny Fingeroff on at the end of last year. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Danny's in the midst of, of uh, prepping a, a new Stan Lee. Uh, he's working with Stan and doing his bi- uh, his autobiography and everything and working oh, with lovely. him. Oh, lovely. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, you never hear much about Larry Lieber, Stan's brother, who mm-hmm. dialogued the first uh, Journey into Mystery with Thor. And uh, I have, I'm proud to own two Spider-Man comic strips from the Daily Strips where Larry was the artist and Stan wrote them. And uh, my buddy Alex Saviak was the inker on that. And uh, just a really interesting guy. And and Larry went with uh, Martin to Atlas uh, Seaboard. Atlas Seaboard. Yeah. Um, Yeah, in the 70s and stuff. And it was like, oh, wow, Stan's brother is working for for this company of spite. So it's like, you know, like, are they okay? Do they get along or whatever? And Danny kind of danced around the question. And I'm like, well, how come Larry's never at the, uh, Larry Lieber's never at any of the uh, cons and stuff? And he's like, you know, he they honored him one year at San Diego. Um, yeah. But he's just a private guy. And he goes, you know, he lets Stan kind of have the spotlight. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. How could you not let Stan have the spotlight? He'd take it from you. <laughs> uh, you know, just to flash back real quick. Uh, yeah, yeah. Com- Comic Book Artist Magazine has a fantastic Full issue dedicated to the Atlas Seaboard history. You know, and I might be thinking of comic book artists for uh, for the same uh, treatment of Charlton as well. Possibly they, so. Because yeah, I think I think that might. I, now that you say comic book artists, yeah, man. No, this is great. And clearly, uh, there are there are a lot of goofy villains from uh, Atlas Seaboard that I'm sure uh, you know at least danced across your wish list if you didn't actually you know nail them down for chapters and stuff. <laughs> I had to I had to leave it at two. I think I left it at two. Okay, but uh, that's what I had to do with the first book too. I really wanted to put as many Atlas car- uh, Atlas superheroes as I could in, but I ended up limiting it to Morlock two thousand one, and um, oh, how embarrassing is this? I'm blanking out. Was it Iron Jaw? I was hoping it might be Iron Jaw. No, I couldn't. I couldn't justify Iron Jaw because of course he was a barbarian. Okay, and even <laughs> that's for. True. Even for a, um, uh, <laughs> that's excellent. I'm sorry. That's a that's a barb. You and Conan have to go in the other room. You're not allowed in the club. I'm sorry. But even uh, given that, of course, uh, even for a superhero, he was he was kind of rough. Uh, I believe he he describes women as only being good for one thing. He leaves an old man to be murdered by a rampaging tribe because old men should uh, should not be allowed to live if they can't fend for themselves. He's kind of he's kind of rough for a hero. I understand. All right. Fair enough. It was um, Phoenix, by the way. Phoenix the Protector okay. was sure, the one sure. I went for. Because uh, his, story, his story went so off the rails in the last issue, and he spent most of his time you know, basically mourning the Earth because he was no good at defending it. <laughs> so Nice. That is a fine, fine hero. Not my favorite of the Atlas ones, but I do, I do adore his nihilism. Is you mentioned Siegel obviously is a big writer. Um, what what other like ironically great writers came up with some like did you keep score as you are an Excel sheet where you're looking and going, God damn, look at that, man, Gil Kane really did a lot a lot more of these goofy heroes than I, and villains than I gave him credit. Uh I really in the first book I ended up unintentionally crafting a real narrative out of Joe Simon's career. Because choice, go on. Oh, so good. I am. Uh, I'm a major fan of what I'm. I decide to call the the Simon Grandinetti verse, which nice. is that Keep going. I know exactly where you're going. Go yeah, on. it's that Prez, brother power, green team, uh, champion sports. I like to put champion sports in there. Go on. Uh, 
I'm missing one. I cannot recall. There's four of the books they worked on together and I'm blanking. But I will just say that that little collection of youth-oriented stories and books that he was doing are some of my favorite comics of all time. So both Prez and Brother Power got in there, both for just how outrageous they were, but also for their potential being cut off so early. Because I'm sure you heard the story that uh, I believe it was Infantino was president of D.C. at the time. Mm-hmm. And he hated hippies so much that he canceled Brother Power. He refused to let it continue. I, and I, I, st- I didn't know that was the reason why. That's fantastic. Go on. I hope I'm not blaming Infantino incorrectly, but that was I believe that's the story. And then Prez, you have to imagine, fell to the fell prey to the same problem. Uh, and then the, gr- the green team just was a was a fatality of the. <laughs> comic book uh the dc the dc implosion right because you can only find their second or second and third appearances in the comic canceled cavalcade right and you know tell people about the dc implosion i bet you'd have a better handle on it than i would uh it was an exciting time at dc comics they were really doing well in the tv licenses they had their welcome back cutter yes show and isis and the comics were doing quite well they were really bursting out with a bunch of new weird series. They were integrating characters they hadn't used in a while. So the Secret Society of Supervillains, the Freedom Fighters. Yes. These were all kicking ass and taking names. And they advertised the upcoming DC explosion that was going to bring an exciting new enemy ace and a new Hawkman title. And uh, something with Mr. Miracle because Big Barter was featured. And a Steve Ditko creation they'd never seen before called the Odd Man. And here they come. And all of a sudden the market collapsed. And they had to cancel, instead of bringing in new books, they canceled like 20 titles or some immense number of titles, uh, including Firestorm and Black Lightning and a lot of their sort of fringe popular characters. But for years at the conventions, if you knew the right guy, you could get your hands on a photocopy of the finished art for all of those unpublished stories. And that was called the Cancelled Comics Cavalcade. I remember well, yeah, no, I, and, and the two issues. Was the implosion caused by a distribution problem or something, or did newsstands? I know for a while, too, the problem was newsstands just couldn't get enough of a profit margin over, you know, a, a magazine was, that was only like 30 cents or whatever at the time. I believe it was a, it was a threefold shock, and then it was there was, a, there was a hike in the printing and materials cost. There was a sudden dip in the number of available newsstands. Okay. Keep, keeping in mind, this is early, mid-70s, so we're hitting that recession hard. True. I think it, yes. it might have actually been 77, so we were really in that. Yeah, totally. Carter that, administration. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. One of the worst economic right the times and right out of the energy crisis during the brief yep. forward couple years and everything. Yeah, no, very tough time for Americans. Go on. Yeah, so 78, I just looked it up, and that's that's about right. Um, and then the company itself just really suffered. They were they laid off about forty percent of the of the employees. Very interesting, yeah, man. I yep. uh, well, you know, and I want to get back to Joe Simon. And is uh, was it Andy Grandinetti? What, what was because that sounds like a race car driver. <laughs> what, what was what was what was Grandinetti's uh, first name? Do you remember? Uh, it's oh god, I'm not really doing well by myself. Oh, dude, today. it's <laughs> Sunday night. I totally. <laughs> And it's I also my that. my third podcast today. So. Oh, man. Uh, it's Jerry Grandinetti. Jerry, thank you. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to think. I really want to come up with that fourth one. And I know it was a first issue special book. So I'm going to do – this is tacky to do on a podcast, but I'm actually going to look them up. Oh, I don't mind. No, feel free. Uh, while, you're, while you're doing that, I want to – 
Joe Simon really was the go-to packaging guy that several companies, when they thought they, that their line needed a kick in the ass, they would yeah. go to, and completely understandably well, because on the one hand, Simon did create all these really goofy characters that I'm sure likely, you know, pepper your books. But uh, but again, people know he co-created uh, Captain America with Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. And going to those uh, kid team books as he did in the 70s, well, the reason why was during the war and in the 50s, like the two great explosions were team boy team books like uh, Boy Commandos and uh, Boy's mm-hmm. Ranch were huge successes. And then, of course, too, and it's so weird to think that the guy that made so many great action comics and stuff like all those and the superhero books, he and Kirby create the romance line. And, and you know, that yeah. becomes, you know, that becomes a big deal, too. So like Joe si- and, and Joe Simon left the comics world during the 50s and when things got tough during the Wortham uh, era of, uh, you know, Senate investigations and links of uh, child delinquency to comics and stuff. Joe Simon's like, hey, man, I'm a, I'm a newspaper guy. I'm a good writer and stuff. Goes off, goes back to the advertising world, gets involved in New York politics and helps, mm-hmm. uh, I want to say, I, I want to say Rockefeller with his gu- gubernatorial campaign, Nelson Rockefeller. Um, you know, yeah, and just as this guy. And it's like every now and then we get this call in the 60s from Archie. Hey, reboot our line and stuff and help us with our heroes. And that's why, like, characters like The Web and stuff, I know yeah. Joe Simon had a hand in that reboot. And again, in the, in the 70s with DC, those first issue specials. And really yep. the only good one... That, that well, the Sandman, you can argue if it was good or bad, and that was Simon and Kirby coming up with a different kind of Sandman. Uh, but I always love Marty Pasco and uh, Walt Simonson's Dr. Fate. Oh, that's a solid one. I tell you, most of First Issue Special, I, I really enjoyed. I like DC's weird anthology comics of the era. I still have my collection of Wanted. I still have my First Issue Specials. Nice. I did find out The Outsiders, by the way, was the other Simon Grandinetti piece. Oh, very cool. A different Outsiders group. Very nice. Different Outsiders. They were all in there in the first book. And they're all weird mutants. Um, I vaguely remember that now that you say that. Go yeah, on. They, they live under a hospital and they find other weird mutants <laughs> and they all make a family. Uh, <laughs> That's right. They live under but, a hospital. Um, That's so fantastic. Yeah, to continue singing Joe Simon's praises, when Harvey Comics wanted to get back into the superhero game, for yes. one reason or another, they didn't just resurrect all their old 1940s heroes, but they had Simon create a whole bunch of new ones, and they are all weird and kind of off-putting and strange and really excited with Otto Binder doing the uh, the actual script writing oh, on them. so good. Yeah, go on. It's a great combination. So Jigsaw, for instance, was uh, – this is a story that, by the way, Simon will use over and over, I discovered. Uh, an astronaut goes into space, and he's badly injured, and he's rescued by aliens, and they stitch him back up, but they stitch him back up weird because they don't know what humans look like. Awesome. <clears throat> so he gets the power to stretch. All his tendons are super stretchy, <laughs> but his skin isn't. So his skin is cut into jigsaw-like plates, and so when his tendons stretch, just blocks of skin go with it. Ew. That's awesome. It that's is fantastic. super fresh. Oh, that's great, man. That's like, he's got I, another character. He got a character called B Man. Okay. Who is you know how comics will you know they'll do a lot of names as destiny and they will do a lot of puns. Uh, but B Man's real name was Barry E Eames. He <laughs> he goes to this planet of he's attacked by mutated bees and taken to a bee planet ruled by a queen bee. Given a bee costume that's got like stingers and for some reason gas comes out of a jet on his nose, which seems like the worst place for it to do. 
Uh, then he comes to Earth to steal honey and gold because it looks like honey, and he makes a big hive, and then he becomes a good person, and he joins his own branch of the FBI. <laughs> Otto was having some fun with the script, or Joe was drinking. One of the two things. Or both. <laughs> or both. Let's celebrate b man. man. That's fantastic. <laughs> Jesus. I, uh, you know, I want to get back to the green team just for a second, because my sure. very good friends... Uh, Art Baltazar and Franco, who created the wonderful Tiny Titans for DC, uh, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago during the New 52, they were approached to do a new version of the Green Team. And it's like, we got the name, we want to maintain the trademark, give us something, you know, and, and he, he, they used the, the, uh, the basics of the fact that these were boy millionaires. Mm-hmm. And again, this is the 70s, so Millionaire was pretty impressive enough. Yeah, it was incredibly impressive back in 75, so, yeah. And, and I guess he turned, they did turn them into billionaires, but they made them into kind of uh, an adult, like kind of a Wolfman Perez sort of Teen Titans group and kept some of the characteristics. I know there was a Western kind of cowboy guy, not as, not as silly as Simon and uh, Granetti's. Uh, is it Granetti or Grandinetti? It's Grandinetti. Grandinetti, thank you. But not as crazy as their concept, but you know, and also threw in a couple uh, uh, women on the green team as well because they weren't just boys. About and, time, exactly. And you know, I really felt bad for them because they had some really brilliant ideas that uh, DC was. Ve- you know, I think the intent was modernize these, turn them into some sort of uh, property that we can put to prospective producers and say. Here's our library. Yeah, we got yeah. a few, you know, goofy ideas that obviously wouldn't work in the past. So let's keep the name and make them a little more presentable. Because at one point, I know uh, they were like, "Hey, we want them to be aggressively pursuing old superhero tech," and had the green team maybe trying to buy a used Batmobile or show up in a used Batmobile <laughs> that had already done it. Yeah, exactly. And that's the laugh. And everyone, and everyone they told, they would, we'd all laugh. And DC's like, no, no, Batman, you know, no Batman stuff can be in the book. And it's like, why? And, I, <sighs> and, I, and then you realize why. And it's because they want this thing to be pure and they can't put a joke in and have the producers be like, oh, that's great. And let's right. have, you know, the Batmobile show up. And it's like, yeah, you can't do that. So, uh, you know, I mean, and I, I shrugged. It's too bad. They, they, they did the best they could with – they had a great artist. I can't remember the gentleman's name. But uh, they did the writing, and it, it was it was really too bad. And again, because they're like, you ever hear of the green team? I'm like, yes, I have. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm old enough to have uh, purchased that uh, 20 cent uh, green team issue. Uh, back yeah, it's then. a it's kind of a shame. This is one of the things that I, I don't read much in the way of mainstream superhero comics anymore. Okay. And part of what pushed me out of that is knowing that when they come up with an exciting idea, they're probably going to cancel it in three issues. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And go on. Yeah. Yes, please. Well, it's just – and of course they would do that back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Sure. But back then, the format of comics was to tell a whole story in an issue. Very true. And now what you get is, well, it's going to be a six-issue arc or a 12-issue arc, and it goes three issues, and you're just left hanging. And not – you know, it's not like everybody can be Tom King and get the Omega Men pulled the 12 issues. Yes, indeed. I know Tom is listening and very happy that you've just name-checked him. So that's... Oh, let me name-check the hell out of him because that's one of the few writers uh, from the mainstream, too, that I'm reading consistently. That's excellent. And it yeah, it's great stuff. Yeah, Tom's, Tom's a genius. He's, he'll be back on Word Balloon, I'm sure, in the next uh, month or so. He's got some <laughs> really good big uh, Batman stories coming up. So Tell him I said hi. I Indeed. I absolutely <laughs> will, man. No, that's great. And honestly, we've been I've been talking with other guests about... Uh, that frustration, I think, with DC and Marvel, where 
you know, they, they have very specific, they crunch the numbers. They know how much a book needs to make to make it economically feasible and, and are really even careful with, all right, how much is that writer costing us a month? How much is this artist costing mm-hmm. us a month? And um, you're right. I mean, really, a lot of really great ideas. It, it takes, a, especially now, when there are so many great comics in every genre, it is so hard to get noticed. And I made the comparison of DC and Marvel like they're McDonald's and Burger King. And it's like every now and then they'll put steak on the menu and it might be great even for McDonald's and Burger King. But the likelihood of that sticking around is yeah. not very because, they, I mean, they make their money with meat and potatoes. And it's like, no, man, people want people just want cheeseburgers from them. They want more Superman, more Spider-Man, more X-Men, you know, and the like. Yeah. And there just isn't room for or at least the time. To, I to, feel like it's a, it's kind of a it's an endless cycle because you give people nothing but Batman and then some smaller stuff. Well, they're not going to buy the smaller stuff, so they'll keep buying Batman, and then you'll make more Batman, and pretty soon everybody's Batman. Yes. Uh, I have a great theory. I think this is a, a good practice. Every three months, you take all of the green-lighted DC Comics movies, and you pick one that you know is going to suck. So let's go back a year. You take Suicide Squad. And you say, you know what, we're not going to make this, but we're going to take the $180 million and we're going to put that into trying out some new comics. Oh, if only. And then you just produce every crazy thing you can think of, throw it all to wall. If something sticks, two years later, you make a movie out of that. It pays off. Oh, man. We need you in the boardroom. That would be great. Yep. If only. <laughs> no, absolutely. That's going to be a, a long climb, and I don't think I'll make it, but I appreciate the endorsement. <laughs> You clearly get it, man. You're, you you got good taste, and even in uh, celebrating these uh, these uh, regrettable characters and stuff. No, it's it's fun to revisit them. Is there a publisher that uh, you can extrapolate and say, man, these guys just cranked out nothing but <clears throat> Harvey Thriller? Harvey's Thriller line, okay, is definitely high up. Atlas Seaboard, okay, very good. also very high on the list. And Harvey, give the time frame for uh, Harvey's uh, Thriller line. I Harvey Thriller. Yeah. 66 through 68, I think, oh, maybe wow. 69. I assumed you were talking more about the original horror and, and mystery line that Harvey did. But OK, fine. You're the mid-60s Harvey attempt. OK. Yeah, those are all the, the thriller line because they didn't want to just say superheroes. Everybody else was saying superheroes. Um, I do like a lot of the old Harvey characters. I'm a huge Black Cat fan. I think I, that's one of the best books they yeah. did in the 40s. No, absolutely, man. And the Harvey thriller line. Did they do those two issues of uh, Eisner's Spirit as part of that? They did. There you go. So that's about the same time, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, Go on. So those guys are really solid. Back in the 40s, Hillman Periodicals was really good, and they had one title that every single entry was one of the most bizarre superheroes I'd ever seen. And I absolutely loved all of them. And I'm going to run them by you real quick. And if you want to hear more, let me know. Zippo, this was a man, this is a hero clearly inspired by the Zippo lighter, but rather than having fire powers, he had wheels that let him run (laughs) 75 miles an hour, and they threw off sparks. Okay. (laughs) There was the Boy King, who is one of the sole survivors of a Nazi genocide in Swiss Lackia, but he also owns a 400-foot-tall stone robot built by Nostradamus that when he puts a magic screw into the into the thing's neck, it comes alive and serves him. I, I, Alex Ross rebooted Boy King. For Alex Pro- Ross did? For Project, Super, Project Superheroes for Dynamite. I Go on. I guarantee you the original is so much cooler. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so let's see. Uh, there is Twilight, who, as near as I can tell, is dressed like a werewolf. I couldn't tell you why. And he has a talking parrot named Snoopy. Interesting. There's my favorites, Nightmare and Sleepy. They are unemployed hobo wrestlers <laughs> who dress like a skeleton and kind of a baby version of the Grim Reaper. There's – I'm going to skip a few because I want to tell you about this one. There's a character named the Iron Lady. She has mechanical gloves that give her incredible grip and strength. But since she hides them in a muff, she is often referred to as the muff, <laughs> a name that I'm sure will strike terror into the hearts of many. Fly that by today's uh, very actively yeah. uh, vocal uh, comic book <laughs> – new I comic dare book audience. You. I dare you to get that through well, in the 21st century. How's that bring it work? back. <laughs> I don't understand. The, this was so huge in 1944. What's the problem? <laughs> yeah, the muff was enormous in 1944. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, the muff strikes back. The muff returns. <laughs> the muff rises. I can. It sounds nice. like it's made happen. Oh, my God. All-star there's, muff. There's a million titles here, Larry. We got to do this. <laughs> <laughs> the muffing joke. For God's sake, somebody do this. That's fantastic. The muff. That's what. Because at first I thought the Iron Lady might be the uh, Tower Comics enemy of um, Dynamo and, uh, oh, God, their, their group. Uh, uh, yeah, the Thunder Agents. Yeah, Thunder Agents, exactly. See, I just I made up for not remembering Jerry Grandinetti's first name right there. <laughs> so very happy. That's awesome, man. Jesus. You know, I love, it's such a goldmine. Because, uh, you know, I always, I have friends that, uh, you know, would love to write their own comics and they don't know what to do. And I'm like... You know, there are so many great public domain heroes from Fiction House, Hillman, uh, you know, King Comics and Fox Comics and stuff, and some of these other defunct uh, publications that really, I I just, I've talked to Alex uh, Ross about his Project Superpowers from that standpoint. And there are, they're just, at the very least, it's like, okay, you got a name. Yeah. And, and And I don't know exactly if with public domain, you have to depict them as they were in the 40s. So if we were to do our Muff comic, we would have to, you know. Have it have it be as she was, you know, back then and everything. But, um, you know, the, uh, I, I know they've done Airboy. I know Airboy's come back a few times, and they've always yep. kept them in the forties and things. It's it's tricky. The public domain thing is really complicated because of how properties and inventory were sold. So sometimes there's a character you think is public domain. I just helped out an anthology that was successfully kickstarted called Not Forgotten, okay, which is a collection of new stories featuring old public domain characters. And the, the one of the ways I helped them out is having had some experience in determining what constitutes public domain, I got their list of every character they wanted in there and it was just a heartbreaking matter of going through and saying well, this character was created by Fox and its lot was bought by Quality and therefore it's probably owned by DC even though it hasn't seen the light of day in 80 years. There you go. Go on. Yeah. So it's a real shame. But there are some, you know, there's abandoned copyrights. Most 1940s uh, copyright or public domain characters, you can just take and run with them. Like Superpowers did. Project Superpowers, at least the first few issues, these characters came out of the of Pandora's urn looking just like they did, using the same names, and then, you know, of course, changed over the course of the story. Yep, yep. Um, so, yeah, I read a little bit of that. I knew you uh, were that a boy. Yeah, they were frozen uh, in time, I guess, in that Project Superpower story. And, would come and you know, in there that's, one of the, 
that's one of the tricky things about bringing these characters back is everybody feels like you have to come up with an excuse. Like, why haven't we seen them in, in 70 years? Well, that was a real good one. I got to give them getting trapped in Pandora's urn is a real good explanation sure. for why they vanished. Absolutely. That's so funny, man. That's great. The, but I'm uh, sorry, I interrupted you there, so please do continue. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, no, I was just saying, like, Fiction House and, and Hillman, they had so many great characters. And so, I'm, yeah, I'm interested. Tell me about Not, not, you know, not Forgotten. What, uh, what, which surviving heroes are they going to be able to play with? They were able to get, um, what's his name, Black Terror, which I think is pretty much the one character everybody does. Yeah, yeah. Which, which, is, if, which is fine. If people don't know, Black Terror has kind of a Superman, you know, uh, typical bodysuit, but it's all black. The, the cape is black, and there's a Jolly Rogers uh, skull and crossbones on his uh, chest. Domino mask yes. as well. He looks like a pirate Superman, and he's a pharmacist in his yes. uh, secret identity, the most crime-fighting of all secret identities. <laughs> uh, well, let's see. We've got Atomic Man. We've got Doc Strange. That's one of your uh, your America's Best characters. Yes. Mr. Mystic, the Black Knight. Mars Mason was one of those intergalactic types. Black Satan, the Scarlet Avenger. Airmail. Interesting. Uh, one of the worst-named superheroes of all time. <laughs> Because he and his sidekick were Airmail and Stampy. Nice. Stampy. But That's why Stan also, Lee hates sidekicks, by the way. Enough <laughs> <Stampy>. said. <laughs> uh, what I love about him is they're part of the long tradition of hobo superheroes. Man. I love them. There's a ton. Of, when I started writing this, there's a ton of impoverished, unemployed, and hobo superheroes in comics. That's insane. It's my next project. I, oh, th- uh, truly. <laughs> is it really? Uh, it might be just a personal one, but I'm really into the idea. Every time I find one, I'm shocked. But, you know, there was – in the 1940s, you know, hobos were a big part of the culture because a lot of people were, you know, displaced by the Great Depression. So yes. a lot of mythology popped up. It's not unusual to have a good person be without a home or without a job. So I like that. I like that comics were willing to embrace the the working class back then because they kind of don't anymore. That's true. No, you're right. That's that's really and 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 really, I did kind of gloss over that when you first said it, and I'm glad you brought it back because it is it is interesting that that was an idea. But like you said, there were just vagabonds that were kind of just traveling the the country mm-hmm. and and were displaced by the depression or even displaced by the wars and everything. So yeah, uh, that that is plausible. And I mean, wow, that's crazy. Vagabonds. The uh, to go back to Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, they had a character called the Vagabond Prince. Uh, who was a greeting card writer who lived in utter poverty, and he was the legal owner of every piece of land in the city where he lived. But crooks took the deed from him. <laughs> so he was the vagabond prince of the city. That's awesome. Oh, my God. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Jesus, man. Hilarious. <laughs> All right, so was there... You know, now, we, and we said, you know, Siegel from a writer standpoint and Joe Simon, we mentioned, uh, are there artists that, you know, really kind of became, you know, known for, for coming up with goofy stuff? Well, Otto Binder is always a big part of this. Understood. Um, great writer. Because, yeah, great. And of course, like basically the 60s, as we, the Silver Age, as we understand it, could not have happened without him. Uh, Rattle off some of the like the A list stuff that that Otto Binder. I had I had on um, was it Dennis Kitchen who just wrote the great Otto Binder uh, or he just wrote a great um, I take that back um, God uh, 
one of the Mad Magazine uh, great artists. And and prior to that, he had also they re-released his autobinder biography. I think it's Dennis Kitchen. I have got to check that out. I actually it's, have not seen it. I'm oh, it's in so the, good. I'm in the middle of my Al Jaffe uh, biography right now. So he's. Have you ever had? Have you ever gotten to meet him at any uh, like Society of Illustrators or anything like that? Such a sweet guy. Jow, I'd love to meet him. He's positively my hero. He's such. He was just on Gilbert Gottfried's podcast in the last year. Oh, I got to check that. Out. And it and it was so <laughs> great. And he did. He had tremendous stories and just such a great gentleman. Uh, they released a book of Marvel's uh, pulp stuff, uh, pulp magazines, not comics. Um, although hmm. Kazar started in the pulps before he he became a comic book hero, and in fact right. even does the the pulp Kazar predate Superman and was a Tarzan knockoff, uh, in, like in 1934. So one of those action heroes that that does technically predate Superman. Um, but, uh, yeah, Al was there because he worked for the pulp department and did illustrations for that as well. And I mean, just such a gentleman and he's in his early nineties, but razor sharp. And, and, you know, it's, and of course, as people know, uh, Jaffe does the, uh, mad fold in of mm-hmm. the, uh, of, of the magazines and still does them. Uh, no, 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 just, just a, a great, great guy. Yeah, absolutely. Like I say, one of my idols, I'd love to meet him. And of course, you know, I don't want to be grim, but you know, the clock's running out. So I got to make that happen soon. Sure. So that's true of everyone, isn't it? You know? Yeah. Well, and we mentioned Otto Bender and forgive me, we stopped, we stopped with his bibliography, but I mean, I'll Mm. start you off. I mean, so many big things that you connect with Superman came from Otto Bender. Sure. Co-creator of Supergirl, co-creator of Legion of Superheroes. Superheroes. Lucy Lane, the the bane of Jimmy Olsen's uh, existence. I'm a big Lucy Lane fan. I I, I respect that, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) She was great. Uh, Crypto, one of his, Insect Queen. Um, Yes, Lana Lang's uh, secret identity. Yes, Insect Queen. And did we we say Supergirl? Because, of course, he was the youth creator. Okay, good. And by by the way, the book that I was trying to think of is Otto Binder, The Life and Work of a Comic Book and Science Fiction Visionary. And it's by um, Bill Shelley, mm, the, okay. the very accomplished uh, fan, comic book fan uh, author. And it's I a will tremendous check book. Out. Very, very cool book. But if we want to, uh, if we want to go over some of his weirder creations sure. besides B Man, <laughs> uh, he did also create Beppo the Super Monkey. Nice, yes. Always, always a freaking classic. <laughs> uh, uh, Oh, I'm blanking. He definitely – he created a bunch of the Kid Eternity villains. Oh, cool. So uh, Master Man, who was the evil version of Kid Eternity, and Skier, an evil painter uh, that's in the Legion of Regrettable Supervillains. Nice. Uh, so he's got a good catalog of those going for him too. And, of course, all the really wild Captain Marvel villains were yes. his creation. So we have one of them in the book. We have Spider-Man's namesake. I'm, I was going to say. I was going to bring that up. By all means, continue. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. He dresses he dresses in a furry suit, which over the course of the story you realize he doesn't need to wear, but he likes that it makes him look like a tarantula. And he invents a sticky glue that is a hard a quick hardening plastic that can even slow down Captain Marvel, but its its delivery vector is a little has leaves a little to be desired because it's basically a fire hose attached to a purse. And he just squeezes it like bagpipes, and a big gunk of white liquid will splash Captain Marvel in the face, which I also understand is one of the top categories on Pornhub. <laughs> but nice. uh, so there's also, I mean, Mr. Adam and Talkie Tawny and 
Uh, oh, I, and I have That's to right. mention I, I have to himself. mention his greatest creation. My friend Dave Lartigue will never let me down if I forget Space Cabby. You know, I love Space Cabby as well. It's, They're charming did, stories. Did you see? I, and I don't know if you've, you're watching it all the new Justice League action ten minute cartoons. I have not seen them. No, they're they only for, ten minutes. They are only ten minutes, which is crazy. Uh, they are buried in the early morning on Cartoon Network. And thank God I have, you know, cable and a, and a DV, you know, programmable DVR so that I can grab them. But literally there was a wonderful 10-minute adventure with Space Cabby and Superman and Superman and, and Mr. Mind. So there was oh. like a total Otto Binder fest. And yeah, yeah. there's three I love. All exactly, right. Exactly, man. And yeah, it's like Otto, uh, Mr. Mind uh, did some crime on some p- planet and it's Superman's job to collect him. Or to bring him to this planet for justice, and it's on a red sun, so he needs Space Cabby to get him there. And it's like Paul Dini uh, is among the writers, and it's all the great uh, current DC of the last twenty-five years DC animation writers that know how to you know do this stuff so well. And my concern was, I'm like, are we gonna get enough story in nine minutes? And he's like, oh yeah. And I'm like, okay, fine. And as you just heard, I mean, this thing, and really, I that's just the premise. They do a great job in it. It lives up to its name. It is action-packed. They are very <laughs> fun stories. There is a definite angle of humor, but they still respect the you know purpose of the hero and stuff. And it's not just uh, like Teen Titans or Tiny or yeah, Teen Titans Go, which I do love. Do you love Teen Titans Go? I'm a big fan of. Uh, I actually like the original Teen Titans cartoon better than Go. I like the mania of it. Yeah. But I enjoyed the the I, I like a good narrative. I respect that absolutely. And that's so I the didn't. Thing. Yeah. No, and that's the thing. I think you get a little bit of the Teen Titans Go humor, not as crazy as they get, but you really do get good story. And yeah, man, no, I again like you uh, would read those DC superstars of space, you know, hundred page spectaculars and the eighty page giants, and you'd occasionally get a space cabbie story in there. And I I love space cabbie, huge, <laughs> huge. I, I like all those really charming DC science fiction stories that had kind of a uh, well, what about that kind of ending to it? How, how do you feature? It was all very suburban and pleasant. Yes. Well, and again, it was coming off of the whole juvenile delinquency thing, so they had to make sure that their their stories and their characters were squeaky clean. And and I think they yeah. achieved that. And that's and then you know it's funny because and again, as someone that like yourself that did a super does a Superman blog and appreciates all the different eras of Superman, I always feel like the Weisinger era gets shit on so many times by kids who don't really understand that while they were telling adventure stories, they were also doing parody of pop culture. And that's yeah. why Alan Funt of Candid Camera shows up in a Superman comic. Or Jimmy Olsen gets the idea of doing Caveman Beatles because he's time-traveled. And, you know, and not to mention the other million, you know, crazy things that happen to Jimmy in, in that great comic book. But aren't these stupid? And it's like... No, they're they're meant to be funny, and also they're meant to yeah. be funny for a kid audience. I mean, they were made for this tweener audience, and it's like, sorry, sorry that it's not sophisticated. <laughs> I'm sorry you're not getting Frasier in this month's Super. <laughs> it is it is hard to remember sometimes when you're reading these, especially. I have to remind myself periodically they were written for eight year olds. Yes, yeah, you're so, right. Maybe I was maybe I was being kind. And I think you're being kind because no, you're Weisinger, right. Yeah, Weisinger used to tell the story that or used to say that the any idea he had for a Superman comic, one of the kids in his neighborhood would tell him that he wanted to see it in a comic. Yes. Which, 
eh, let's say that was about 10% true. But he was talking about eight and nine-year-old kids and he was trying to write comics for them, That's which true. doesn't necessarily explain, say, the Edmund Hamilton stories or Superman Under the Red Sun or the death of Superman. True. But True. Or all his his obvious, like, weird issues for therapy that <laughs> yeah, bless bless Mort Weisinger, but clearly that man needed to go to therapy. Oh, man. Well, you, you hear those horror stories where he's holding out checks and literally making oh, players yeah. jump for their money and stuff. Yeah, no, douchebag. I mean, and, and I'm sorry that he had his problems. It's interesting. There's a comic book history uh, group on Facebook that the people there were kind enough to say, hey, if you want to join. And I'm like, oh, sure, I don't have much to contribute. I mean, I'm kind of a fan like everybody else. Every now and then I find something. But, yes, yeah, somebody recently, I think it was Sean Howe even, uh, the uh, the guy who wrote that great uh, unlicensed uh, Marvel history, was like mm-hmm. looking for, like, can I, you know, anyone else have really good Mort Weisinger interviews or or things I can look at for, for more background and stuff? Because, yeah, I mean, it's it's weird. And certainly there aren't that many survivors left that can tell you what it was like to work for him. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, Len Wein, who I love has had his share of weird villains. And I wondered if any of his uh, bronze age Marvel creations maybe ma- ma- made your list. I, I, oh, man, I'm going to have to check. You really hit me with a fast one. There. Oh, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> That's not a problem. I need to, there's a couple of silver age villains that I now can't remember. Or sorry, not silver age, bronze age villains. That I now actually can't remember if he had a hand in. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna check real quick. While yes, go on. Black Talon. Okay, all right. Black Talon definitely gets a mention because, of course, he's an he's a guy dressed like an evil chicken. <laughs> and I would be I would be very remiss if I did not include him. Uh, okay, so I, my confusion was Swarm is in the book, and I couldn't remember if that was Bill Mantlo or Len Wein. Okay. Len Wein. Okay. And it is it is Mantlo, one of my other favorite creators from sure. Marvel's nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties. So at the very least, I got uh, I got Black Talon in there. <laughs> That's cool. Did uh, Captain Strong from Superman make it in there? No, and I would never put him in there. <laughs> I love him so. Uh, I I did notice when the book was done that I had managed to avoid putting any Superman villains in there. Interesting. Yeah, I feel embarrassed because obviously it was my bias, and it was only later I realized, you know, for crying out loud, Terra Man. Yes. A space cowboy who fights Superman with, like, radioactive tumbleweeds and flies a Pegasus and is based on Clint Eastwood, but they gave him a mustache so it didn't look too similar. That was an obvious one. That should have gone in, and I feel really bad that it didn't. I love Terra Man, though. And didn't Neil Adams draw the original Terra Man? he drew the original cover, which is where the Clint Eastwood likeness was strongest. Okay, or and if and, not and, his uh, first appearance, then maybe his origin? Because it sure as hell looks like Neil Adams' art. I so. believe he did the origin of young Toby Manning being abducted. Okay. And okay. it was uh, Swan doing the uh, the first appearance. Oh, very cool. That's excellent, man. Vartox, of course, another Superman. Vartox villain. is great. Uh, Carb Brack probably would have been in if I had thought about it. Who's Car- no, I don't remember Carb Brack, please. Here we go. <clears throat> Carb Brack <laughs> was an alien from the Andromeda system who disguised himself as a normal human being, but was allergic to Superman. So whenever Superman flew by, it would make him revert to his Andromedan form, which was this kind of pie-eyed, giant albino with shocking red mustache, goatee 
combination things and a unibrow. Uh, and he kind of looked like Charles Nelson Riley in Lidsville. <laughs> Voodoo. But, so his whole, his whole thing was, uh, that he was allergic to Superman and the allergy was getting worse. So he needed to get Superman to leave the planet and he couldn't go back to Andromeda and he couldn't go to another world. It was all very confusing, but mostly the idea of being allergic to a superhero is simultaneously brilliant and a little dopey. <laughs> you don't know who the writer was of that, do you? I am going to make a guess that it's our boy, Carrie Bates. Okay, very good. Because uh, Carrie Bates, of course, is probably the the single most inventive uh, writer in the Superman legacy, and that includes Grant Morrison. I'm a huge Carrie Bates fan. He and Elliot Magan and Marty Pasco. Oh, yeah. The three of oh, them. Oh, I, I love to hear some love for Martin Pasco because I don't think he gets enough credit for his Superman work. Uh, you know, uh, I am proud to say Martin is a, a very good friend of mine. and I Oh. And it's because of this podcast. And, in fact, uh, we both were just in Utah for a, a spring convention, their FanX show. And, uh, I mean, beyond his wonderful comic book work, you know, Marty's one of the story editors on the first season of Batman, the animated series and yep. uh, did a ton of animation, was on the 80s Twilight show for Twilight Zone show for CBS and uh, Simon, S- Simon and Simon writer, which makes Greg Rucka happy. Uh, just, a, <laughs> just a really interesting guy who's who's spent a lot of time in TV and in uh, animation and comics. And uh, yeah, I always and it's so funny because Marty is always like, well, I'm not Carrie. I'm not Elliot. They were the great Superman writers. I'm like, Marty. You were a hell of a Superman writer, and it really, I, yeah. you know, is is his uh, own self modesty and stuff. It's like it was really fun to see so many people go up and really excited to see him at the Salt Lake City show. I, I was very happy about that. Yeah, I I would wildly disagree with that self assessment of his because I honestly one of my favorites. That's just awesome. Across man. The board. I will yeah. I will pass on the love. That's great. Tom King and Marty Pasco getting a shout out today. <laughs> so far, so good. I'll make a list. That's excellent, man. And uh, I uh, I, I was I was going to say, is there one more? Uh, well, you know, actually, I'm on a page right now, and I have okay. to point out the enemy of Yankee Boy, Reefer King. Reefer King. Yeah, the, the weird thing about him is that his this was during the 1940s, and his primary sin wasn't giving out funny cigarettes. And it wasn't even that marijuana caused people to commit crimes, which is, you know, the old Reefer Madness sure. argument. It was that he was <laughs> he was undermining the rationing of tobacco. During World War II. That was his primary crime. Is that. He was. He was not paying taxes. And helping the war effort. He was selling marijuana. And getting around it. Wow. Yeah. Priorities are are messed up. But you know. Hey. We're a capitalism. So that. That's your big problem. (laughs) And the. uh, The villain of Yankee Boy. And this was. uh, Harry Chesler uh, comics. Yep. Harry A. That's awesome, man. In fact, I'm doing a – I've got a weird thing I've been reading up on for the blog lately because, you know, Yankee Boy was a was an ongoing character and pretty common. But Chesler also did a Yankee Girl character who, who appeared in Dynamic Comics, which was Yankee Boy's home. Okay. And she appeared in an issue where there was no Yankee Boy. And I don't see her origin tied into Yankee. I'm just utterly confused by her. And more specifically, like what what the editorship was. So I'm in the process of getting all the Yankee boys put under my belt and trying to figure that one out. That's awesome, man. That's fantastic, man. Again, the name of your blog because people are going to want to you know go there and check this stuff out. Gone and forgotten. Gone and forgotten. Very excellent. And uh, again, it is the League of Regrettable 
Supervillains, that's the new book that just came out at the end of March, and the companion book, The League of uh, Regrettable Superheroes. But another reason why I wanted to talk to you, John, if we still have a little time. Sure we do. Because you've done several podcasts today, and I know how that is sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's been a long day. Absolutely, man. But I did want to mention uh, just one more thing, your Columbo podcast. Yes, sir. And I like how you phrased that. So it became a reveal. I'd like to ask just one more thing. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been running a Columbo podcast with my good friend RJ White for the last, uh, I think we got to be coming up on our third anniversary. Very good. Uh, we watch an episode with a special guest and then we record us all talking about the episode. Oh, man. So three years and you're doing three it years. Uh, it's bi-weekly, and we, you know, we, much like with the blog, we take long breaks sometimes. Okay, because <clears throat> where are you right now? Because I did go back, even, but you know, honestly, I'm a massive Columbo fan, and I'm looking for good Columbo talk in the pod sphere. So uh, I was very pleased to find your show. Where, I mean, how far into the run are you on? Because of course, there was the NBC run, right? And then there was the ABC TV movies, which I got to be honest. I still kind of like them, and they're not, you know, they're they're not they're not the quality of the. Yeah, I know. Believe me, and that's good. I appreciate your response. Uh, they vary in quality. The reason I'm wooing is because we just saw our contender for possibly the worst episode ever. Tell me, it's called No Time to Die. It's an adaptation of an Ed McBain 87th Precinct novel. I just saw it too. It was just on TV this. Past it was just on a couple days ago. Yeah. Go on. Go on. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's There's the most a, un uh, it's the most uncolumbo of the yeah. Columbos. Go on. The, I, I we I feel that it was a stealth pilot for an 87th precinct story. My my co-host feels that it was their attempt to revitalize Columbo with a new formula. It might be a peanut butter and chocolate thing where it's a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. Uh but yeah, there's no murder, there's no killer. Uh Columbo is almost a supporting character in it. True. And <sighs> There's some you, know, you can question as to whether it was well written or well done. I think it was a decent adaptation of the story, but my primary problem is there, there's a repetition of two things in the episode. It starts at a wedding, mm-hmm. and there is a chorus of "For He's a Jolly Good Fellow." We end up hearing the words "For He's a Jolly Good Fellow," or "For I'm a Jolly Good Fellow." Close to 70 times. (laughs) There is a foley of a camera shutter that is going on through the entire wedding, and it's really loud. It's overlaid way too hard. Yes. We hear it more than 100 times in 10 minutes. (laughs) It is so – by the time – so you get all the camera shutter, camera shutter, camera shutter. It's over. The For He's a Jolly Good Fellow starts. A few more camera shutters. The singing of For He's a Jolly Good Fellow goes on for another 10 minutes. By that point, I was no longer charitable with this episode. (laughs) So I was very upset with him, very angry. I'm just learning to find a couple good things about it as I do the the wrap-up notes for it. Hilarious. So are you – and are you – were you going chronologically? Are you well into – because that's near the end. That is near the end. No, we we bounce around back and forth. We pick it because what we like to do is – ask our guests to pick an episode. And we also like to pick an episode that uh, has something thematically to do with our guests. Um, so we are hopping around a lot, much to the consternation of some of our early listeners who are hoping we would do one at a time. 
Uh, and to the consternation of later listeners, because everybody asks to do the Johnny Cash episode. Oh, and that was the that was the first one we did, because, of, of course, everybody asks. Oh, so good. But uh, I think we have for people looking that swan song. And it's a it's a solid one. Uh, and Johnny Cash does pretty good. He and, does great. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, again, obviously, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm not watching them as intently as you. And that's what I was going to say about your your absolutely valid points about No Time to Die. Because I'm like, you know, I don't think I noticed that as I would get up and make myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich while casually watching this movie at, you know, 10 in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> I, have to, I have to watch them twice before the podcast. And then I watch it a third time so I can grab screen caps for the Tumblr. Cool. Cool. And if it's a great episode, oh, I love it. We watched Any Old Port in a Storm before this. That's a fun episode. We had such a blast with it. Donald Pleasance, another trip. Donald Pleasance, so good. No idea why he didn't come back for a second one, although he was on on Mrs. Columbo once. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, man, you're even watching Mrs. Columbo, Wolf. I am. So RJ and I have a real split about the Columbos. He said he will tolerate three more Mrs. Columbos. (laughs) There are – I have eight on uh, recorded. We've done one. I would love to do all eight, but I, I think I am pushing my luck. So we're only going to do another three episodes. <laughs> Kate Mulgrew, who obviously Mulgrew. became – I mean still an amazing actress on Orange is the New Black and mm-hmm. such a wonderful – and it's not her fault. She's just looking for a game. Well, it's not. And I, we, we talk about this on the one time we covered it. I think Mrs. Columbo would have been a great detective show. If only they took out the Columbo. Well, they did for a while. They renamed it Kate Loves a Mystery. Yeah, by the time they got there, though, the damage was done. Absolutely. No question. No (laughs) question. But, you know, it's it's basically a a single mother with a newspaper job raising like an eight-year-old, nine-year-old girl, trying to have it all, being super effective. She works for a penny saver, of all things, but she keeps bringing them stories of murders. So she's obviously (laughs) going to change this paper single-handedly. Uh. Yeah, I think it had a it had humor and a lot of energy, and I just think it's the Columbo stuff that makes you roll your eyes. Yeah, yeah, you're right, man. No, you're right because I I do remember as a kid watching a handful of them, and they were okay, and they 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 you know it, that was during that period when Universal really was such a machine at yeah. stamping out these crime shows, and I mean, God, they had all their uh, character actors under contract or great relations with them, or would you know. Your your Oscar Goldman guys like Richard Anderson and people like that that they could just go to Simon Oakland, Norman Fell. I mean, just you know, uh, watch, you know, me TV right now at like two in the morning is a feast with all these McClouds and McMillan and wife and all that stuff. Boy, to tie stuff around, please. Uh, Nor- Norman Fell was on the very short lived but excellent black and white eighty seventh precinct TV show. I didn't know that. Go on. And he is he's one of the two actors I only know through comedies. That I always thought would play would make amazing police officers. Sure. So I finally, you know, finally became aware of the TV show. Watched the eighty seventh precinct. He's a much put upon, tired, can't deal with this sergeant, and he's great. And the other actor I always wanted to see as a cop was Ed O'Neill, and he eventually got L.A. Dragnet. So my yes. dreams have been realized. God, that's crazy. We're recording on Easter Sunday, and L.A. Dragnet actually came up in our Easter afternoon conversation because someone was <laughs> talking about how great Ed O'Neill was on Modern Family, and they mm-hmm. liked Married with Children. I'm like, did you know about L.A. Dragnet? And they're like, no. And He's he, so good in that. And also, he didn't want to do it and really kind of quoted this like F.U. 
sort of amount of money per per episode of well if you want and i'm just going to throw numbers out there and well if you want to pay me 200 grand a, a week yeah i'll do it and his agent came back and said they really want you they're going to pay you 200 grand a week and it's like oh shit all right fine and he and he said it was a decent experience but he really was like i don't want to you know this is kind of when you're when you're trying to replace jack webb and you're calling something yeah. you, you dare to call something dragnet it's like okay i don't know if this is going to work and of course it didn't but uh, that's fine. Is it, a, is it a quality show? Was it a quality show? I loved it. It was an early Dick Wolf show. Mm-hmm. And it had that – it definitely had that vibe. But when it, it exceeded its formula, it was superb. And O'Neill has an amazing capacity. He played peevish for the most part. As a cop, he was peevish, by the book, by the numbers, get the job done. And he was, you know, get really tired of all his younger compatriots. But when it fell to him to show some real depth of emotion for his his cases, he just exploded with this with this level of acting I knew he could do, but you never got to see in his comedy roles. That's really cool. He he's in one of my favorite Miami Vice episodes from the first season. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, he where he plays it's like a Donnie Brasco thing where he's an agent that is so deep undercover, uh, it seems like he's turned. And it's Crockett and Tom's job to find out if he has turned or not. And they don't know. And it's and he's loving the life and he's loving the drug lord life and, you know, got his hooker girlfriends and everything and you know, seems to be running with the with the gangsters. And oh God, he, he has some really good dramatic moments in that that honestly it's a, you know, if you can get past if you can get past the linen suits and the T shirts and everything and the and the neon, I, I really do think my I think Miami Vice is one of the, the great eighties crime shows. And, I've been meaning to been meaning to watch a few, so I'll definitely start with an Ed O'Neill episode. There you go, man. Yeah, no, it was it was definitely within the first dozen, and uh, nice. It's, it's great. It really is great. Well, back to Colum- Colombo because sure I, I <laughs> we got just, off on a tangent. Oh yeah, no, no, no. It's all good, man. I mean, and I do t- we do tons of tangents here on Word Balloon, so it's all good, uh, and people appreciate them because they're interested in the old TV and old movies and old books and everything. Um, but yeah, oh god, Peter Falk, just so consummate, and it's so interesting oh, yeah. that. Originally, it was Thomas Mitchell on stage uh, doing the prescription murder on, uh, you know, when it was first done as a play. And they wanted Bing Crosby to be Columbo. Right. And, and God, you, you, I mean, and honestly, I, I would be willing to because Bing Crosby could decently do drama, country girl, things like that. That it, would, sure. might, it might have been mildly interesting to see him in the role. But man, Falk just was certainly a lot younger than those guys when he when he got the role. And it was just really fun. Going back from that 1968 TV movie and all the great uh, TV uh, mystery movies of the of the 70s and through the 90s and stuff, it was a pleasure watching him play this character that that fit as well as that rumpled raincoat and terrible suit, and just you bought it. I mean, he was just so mm-hmm. great. Yeah, he's he's a wonderful tradition of the everyman hero. Yep, that is another thing that we're kind of losing in the you know, highly corporatized era of the modern day. Uh, I, I would just because these are the two things I work on. I'm very happy to put early Superman back, say 1938 through ooh, 41 mm-hmm. and Columbo much in the same vein that they are every man, superheroes who work on whose struggles can be defined by class. Agreed. You know, Columbo's going after the rich dudes who always look down on him because he's an obvious schlub. Superman spends a lot of time throwing uh, corrupt politicians and uh, corrupt business owners off of buildings and over telephone poles. 
they both have a wonderful pro-proletariat bent to them. Absolutely. I was just looking up now. I'm sure you've read Tom DeHaven's novel. It's Superman. Oh, have I? And I love it. There you go. And it's it really it's a great modern writing of that original version mm-hmm. of of Superman. Yeah, we've uh, lots of times that's come up on Word Balloon in terms of talking about Superman as a real social justice avenger. It is. It's a it's an obvious thing. Like as you read the book, you can tell he's mashing it up with To Kill a Mockingbird and Grapes of Wrath, and he should, and it works. Yeah. And there's no reason to turn your nose up at that because it is just glorious. Couldn't agree more, man. No, I, I have a somewhere I have something called a syllabus of steel, which I put out and it's it's set up like a four year college course. Huh. And it every every stage it gets you deeper and deeper into Superman. And Tom DeHaven is there in your sophomore year because it's time to start learning about different deeper uh, renditions of the Man of Steel. You must love the Elliot Magan uh, novels as well. I do love Elliot Magan. I celebrate Miracle Monday every year. boy, That's fantastic. <laughs> that's great. I had the pleasure of having him finally on the show a couple of years ago. And oh, met, him, met him at a few San Diego Comic-Cons. And yeah, man, those are, those are also excellent books and so f- hard to find. And I don't know. Uh, there must be some sort of rights issue that keeps uh, Warner or whoever owns Warner Books today from, oh, sure. from bringing those back out because both Last Son of Krypton and Miracle Monday are such great reads. And it's mm-hmm. Bronze Age Superman, but really written for a novel and, and, dare I say, for an adult audience because it's all the great tropes of, you know, Silver Age Superman and Lex Luthor growing up together and, you know, why Lex became bald and why they hate each other, but they were friends when they were kids. That was the great thing about Smallville, and I'm sure you agree. It was really great to see them modernize that. Uh, yeah. relationship because that's that is one of the great things about Luther that got lost was he knew how to push Superman's buttons because he knew him when yeah it's a it's a beautiful sea change in 61 when they introduce this sudden backstory and they give him a first name and everything because he's been running around until then as just Luthor a yep. villainous scientist no real background he just hates Superman when they give him that connection to his teenage years, suddenly you can make Lex Luthor sympathetic and you can kind of feel some, I I don't want to say rooting for him, but there's a, there's a story in the early sixties where Luthor defeats Superman and he's excited. He can't believe it. And then later it's revealed that it's a Superman robot. Yep. And he, he, he has managed to rob Fort Knox but he's so upset that he was tricked into thinking he destroyed Superman and hadn't that he gives the gold back <laughs> because it was meaningless without victory over Superman. That is brilliant. That is a fantastic addition to the character. That's excellent. I just remember that imaginary story where he finally kills him with kryptonite <laughs> and has love- that, that look of joy, that single panel of like that- the most happy Luther you've ever seen. I finally did it. I've killed Superman. I, uh, I adore that that one is – I think there's somewhere it says, what would happen if Luthor and Superman were friends? And the answer is he'd be lying and kill him. Yep. Uh, but yep. yeah, the uh, that's the one with the puny ants panel where Luthor – Jimmy Olsen is testifying and Luthor from his glass cage yes. in the courtroom just sneers the puny ants. That's fantastic. I forgot about – yeah, the very Eichmann-like glass mm-hmm. – I mean that was clearly still on – 
minds of people that saw the the post World War II Nuremberg trials and stuff. Oh man, that's awesome. Good. Say this is great, John. I'm, <laughs> there we go. Good recall, man. I love it. Well, dude, uh, thank you. I uh, honestly, I mean, I, I could easily go on longer on you know Colombo with you and uh, would tell people to check out just one more thing. Is that the name of the Tumblr as well? Uh, it's jomtpodcast.tumblr.com. We're also on Twitter at jomtpodcast. Uh, probably on the website is jomtpodcast.com. It's just easier to find us that way. I understand. Or, yeah, just one more because everybody – just one more thing. That's what every Columbo fan calls everything they do. This is true. I can appreciate that. Yeah, that's that's fair. Definitely. I uh, No, I, I – you know, the uh, Nicole Williamson uh, – uh, episode I think is another one, favorite of mine, and I was bummed. I read a book that kind of uh, cr- uh, went through all the Columbo episodes, and the author went to talk to him. And he's like, "Yeah, I really don't have any memories. It was really just you know another acting job or whatever." And it's like, "Oh ah. man, he was like one. He was really one of the best Columbo villains." I thought, you know, he's no he's Patrick, on, uh, no Patrick McGowan. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> that's how to how to dial a murder, I believe. There you go. Yeah, with all the movie props and everything, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he was a good one, and. Didn't get used again. It's kind of it's not the greatest Columbo episode either. I think no, no. It it could have been stronger. I I feel like some of the really good potential killers were were sunk by that. Sunk. Oh by, well. By what? Sunk by 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 not having the best possible script. Fair enough. Yeah. 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 The uh, you know there's 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 a lot of great ones. There's one creepy '90s one with William Shatner. Yes, where he butterfly in shades of gray. Yeah, and he, Molly Hagen plays his uh, stepdaughter, and uh, the, yeah, there's a lot of creepy kind of like it's the it's seriously it's like one of the most disturbing William Shatner roles, and it should have. There's been definitely there's definitely a hint of incest in it. Yeah, yeah. What the hell, man? It's uh, fantastic. It's one of our favorite '90s episodes. <laughs> Good. For you know, you. it's That's the, the, the '90s. You got to go a little. Got to go a little weird, or yeah, else it's yeah, just going to be. Let's put a little kink in this. What do you guys think? <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, that's the best Columbo accent I've heard, uh, impression I've heard uh, on any podcast. Oh, dude, that's well. That I appreciate that, and I would, I would, I you know, I you know, I would love to uh, uh, talk more Columbo with you anytime. So if you're if you're hard up for a guest, it'd be, it would be it would be very fun, and you're not obligated at all. I, I was but, just about to invite you on, oh. so I think that's perfectly <laughs> well, that's fair. That's very nice. Thank you, man. That's very cool. No, honestly, I I, uh, I I could go on forever. I love uh, Danny Coleman. I thought did a great job in his '90s Columbo. I wish he had been a killer in the '70s. That's one of my big regrets because oh, totally. I'm a, just I'm an absolute Dabney Coleman super fan. And he's in that one Jack Cassidy. Yeah, he's a he's a cop in one episode. Yeah, and it's great because it's so even in this like little bit role where he's got less than ten lines, I'm sure in the episode he is totally slap Maxwell or Buffalo Bill or any of your favorite. The I forget the name of the mayor on uh, on uh, Mary Hartman. Mary Mary Hartman, Hartman, I'm I am too, but yeah, I love him and all those things. But yeah, or uh, on Golden Pond where he's just yeah, I'll tell you what, not really impressed with you, you know, just like (laughs) if he's not chewing gum, he's mentally chewing gum. I love how he angrily he chews. It's one of his best things. <laughs> and it's really cool. I, I didn't know until Falk passed away that he was part of Peter Falk's inner circle of friends and everything. And that's great. Oh, yeah. So, oh, man, no, it's such a no, huge fan. Well, that's very nice, man. I appreciate that. And any t- anytime I would love to come on and uh, talk Columbo. And I, I have enough of a list that I'm sure I can find an episode that hasn't been covered yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be happy to talk about it. So I'd you know, I'd even be willing to do well if you guys it sounds like you guys already did the uh 
the Shatner crazy one because I'm in radio. Yeah, we're, day jobs we, in radio, so maybe, you know, uh, we've done our Shatners. I think we might have one more radio one. I'll let you know. Okay, no problem. We'll do some hunting down. We'll see if we can find you up on one. That's awesome, man. No, seriously, Jack. Congratulations. Uh, a really, really funny book, and and do, and honestly, because sometimes people can get overly snarky with comics and stuff, and it it's it's interesting to me. That in this day, there are still people that are like, yeah, comics, whatever. And it's just yeah. like, hey, man, it's cool that you don't like it. That's fine, but don't be a douche about it. And uh, that, no, you, you, you tease these things, but you tease them with love and you tease them with knowledge, man. I think it, that- took, a while, it took a while to learn that. I have to admit, my first couple of years of the blog was pure snark. But yeah, after a while, I, I really learned. I hope I learned. <laughs> To talk about them in a respectful and affectionate, if if slightly mocking way. No, man, I, I love them. And also, again, I, I urge people to uh, seek out that This American Life. Uh, it's titled Superheroes. And you'll hear John Morris, uh, even then, talking about his blog and uh, these uh, legions of, uh, I want to get it right, regrettable superheroes and supervillains. The new book. It's a, it's a legion of regrettable supervillains, a league of regrettable superheroes. Ah, yeah. okay. There you go. Thank we, had to, you. we wanted to make it difficult. <laughs> well, you know my uh, my Patreon subscribers are the League of Word Balloon listeners. Oh, nice! Oh, you have to. You know, you got <laughs> You want you got a group of people, and you're in comics. It's got to be a league or a legion or a society or something. So, there you go. Yeah, I got got to stay on stay on brand. Excellent. Well, John Morris, thank you very much for coming on Word Balloon today. It was a really fun conversation. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, John Morris. Grab his books from Quirk Books. And uh, I, I think you'll uh, enjoy them. And also uh, check out his, uh, his blog as well. And uh, further, uh, that, was, that would be Gone and Forgotten. And also uh, check out uh, the Columbo uh, podcast, Just One More Thing. So uh, great conversation with John. I'd love to have him back. And I uh, hope uh, that uh, he'll uh, have me on his uh, Columbo episode because I would love to talk about this stuff more. Uh, I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Word Balloon. It was brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com where they have great collections like uh, X-Men Origins, Trade Paperback, Firestar, Barry Windsor Smith, uh, along with uh, some other great creators. It's 264 pages of Firestar goodness, and uh, it's just 42% off, $17.39. Reach back for the new Teen Titans, Judas Contract. Yes, the uh, animated film is out, but hell, why stop there? Go back and read this incredible collection from Marv Wolfman and George Perez and others, but uh, 180 pages. Uh, man, I'll tell you, this is some racy stuff as far as content. Um, we even talked about this, if you remember, in that Marv Wolfman spotlight that we did in Utah. Because, um, you know, I mean, let's be let's let's face it, man. Deathstroke in. Uh, and little Tara getting down, and Tara underage. I mean, this is this was like you know, kind of Lolita stuff and everything. Pretty racy stuff. I don't know if they could have made this book uh, today. And it's kind of ballsy for DC to re-release it because I could see a lot of people waving their fingers and going, "Oh, you shouldn't do this." But uh, you know, I believe in the, the First Amendment, and I think it's a great story. And uh, you know, Tara's uh, appropriately evil and uh, a lot older than her actual age. So uh, I think she knew what she was doing, and I think it's a great book, and I think um, you can judge for yourself. Get this book, The Judas Contract, 42% off, just $11.59. You can also get Justice League Unwrapped by Jim Lee. Uh, This would be issues 1 through 6 and 9 through 12 
of uh, Jeff John and Jim Lee's uh, new 52 Justice League run. If you like V-necks, you're going to like this version of the Justice League. It's uh, 248 pages, 42% off, $23.19. Let's see. What else have we got here? We've got an Avengers Epic Collection uh, trade paperback, The Masters of Evil. It's uh, Roy Thomas and John Buscema during their classic Avengers run. Uh, from issues uh, 41 through 56, annuals 1 and 2, X-Men number 45, and material even from Not Brand Eck number 5. 496 pages, 50% off, $19.99. It's all there waiting for you at InStockTrades.com. Check it out. Great books, great deals, great prices, good people. InStockTrades.com. Thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. More great episodes still to come. we still got a few days left of April, so I'm not going to leave you hanging. Don't worry. Great conversations coming up. Uh, had a great talk with Dan Slott right before uh, C2E2, and uh, we're going to present that in the next episode of Word Balloon. I'm not sure yet if it's going to be a two-parter or a one-parter because we had a nice long conversation. It was almost three hours long, and uh, I don't know. I keep, I keep going back and forth. I don't know. Should it be two parts? Should it be one part? I'll see. But in, regardless, it's the next episode of Word Balloon. And uh, just watch however you download Word Balloon because there's going to be a new episode popping up sooner than you think. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2017.